On the 1st of May 1851, the magnificent Crystal Palace in London's Hyde Park opened its doors to the first ever international exhibition. It was incredibly popular and in just 141 days, more than 6 million people visited this unique event. History West Midlands' Mike Gibbs spoke to Malcolm Dick of Birmingham University and David DeHaan, former director of the Ironbridge Institute, to find out more. David, it's the morning of the 1st of May, 1851. We're in Hyde Park. We're walking towards one end of the park. What would we see? We're going to be walking through half a million people who've thronged into the park. The building is twinkling in the distance. It's a massive greenhouse. Very beautiful. Early in the morning, it wasn't twinkling in the sun because it was raining. But by nine o'clock, the exhibitors all arrived. Shortly after that, from 9.30 till 11, the guests, the VIPs, had arrived and they got in. By that time, the sun was out and the building was looking absolutely fantastic. The guests were 25,000 season ticket holders, plus the main companies and the other VIPs brought the total to near 30,000. The Queen came by carriage. How she got through the throng of carriages around there, I don't know, but she did. She got there on time, 12 o'clock, and she was allowed to sit down, but she said very clearly in her diary that she didn't sit down, while Albert said a few words. And then they did the first ever royal walkabout, all the way down the British nave, the West nave, all the way to the end, double back on themselves, and then all the way down the foreign nave, finally came back, and at that point... The Queen asked one of the VIPs to declare the exhibition open, which they did. That was it. She went home. On the way out, there was a cannon firing, a sort of royal salute. The papers had said, of course, it would shatter all the glass and it would be disastrous and people inside would get covered in broken glass. It didn't happen. And Malcolm, this shining edifice owed everything to Chance's glass from Smethwick. The Crystal Palace, it's so called, because of the magnificent array of glass that was uh, shining through the sunlight or shining through the rain to greet visitors. It was an enormous building and the amount of production and managerial effort and the orchestration of skills must have been considerable in order to ensure the completion of the edifice on time. Chances had been established for a number of decades in Smethwick and was developing as a very important manufacturer of different types of glass. It was producing stained glass and glass products for um, households, but its main contribution was how its products were used to construct the Crystal Palace. And did this change the way in which glass and iron were used in future in construction? Well, it showed that it could be used effectively in construction, although, of course, Paxton had constructed glass houses at the Chatsworth Estate beforehand. But the ability of the Crystal Palace to weather the environment and to cope with large numbers of people provided a model for uh, railway stations. And we can see many of the great 19th century railway stations 
as crystal palaces over railway lines. There were small iron conservatories, iron glass conservatories before then, in the 1820s and 30s. But there was an architectural competition and the entries included ones by people who were good at designing conservatories and glass houses, Thomas Turner, for instance, Hector Horo. So Paxton had seen what the competition were doing and stuck, bored out of his brain in a disciplinary hearing in a railway committee, he doodled on a bit of blotting paper what turned out to be the basic design for the exhibition. And it was taking his Chatsworth greenhouses and writing them up large. And um, he had a word with Robert Stevenson and said he had this idea. And Stevenson was on the committee and said, take it further. I'd be interested to see how it goes. And all this is just a matter of days before the deadline. And they go hell for leather and make it happen. The other name that's always associated with the Great Exhibition, I guess, is Prince Albert. Where did the idea of the Great Exhibition originate? The idea of exhibitions was not new. There had been a number beforehand, both in Britain and overseas. But it seems to be that the 1849 exhibition in Birmingham was a particularly significant influence, partly because that exhibition had a significant national profile. It was held in conjunction with a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and local manufacturers, artists and key figures in Birmingham society and cultural life were involved in supporting the Birmingham exhibition, which was held at Bingley Hall, which is now the site of the International Convention Centre. And it was on quite a large scale, not least because of the whole series of cultural activities that were linked with it. The Bingley Hall exhibition as well was important because it was the first purpose-built building for housing an exhibition of manufacturers. So that in itself could well have been an influence. The Paris exhibition was the final catalyst, and that's in 1849. And the Royal Society sent a fact-finding team to go and see it. Prince Albert went with them, and they said, this is good, we can do better. And the follow-up committee meeting, the clear question was, is this going to be a national exhibition like the French And Albert said, international, definitely international. Here we have it. They have absolutely the breakthrough point. This is going to be large scale and international. And that's never been done before. They have very little interest. They send delegates around the country to raise funds. Albert goes around speech making. But Albert at this point is fairly unpopular. There were fundraising dinners. The local mayors were all summoned to a meal with Albert and he basically said you go back and you run fundraising dinners in your patch in order to raise funds to cover the exhibition. There was no government money put aside, there's no allocation. The only allocation that makes it possible is because Albert's involved through the Royal Society of Art is he lets them have a bit of his garden. Hyde Park is a royal park but the proviso is that this is a temporary exhibition. This is only going to be up for the summer 
1851. And therefore, the building it's going to go into must also be a temporary exhibition building. I agree that Prince Albert was a crucial figure. He was a modernizer, and he was somebody who was wanting to bring the British monarchy, if you like, into the 19th century and also make his impact. And he did see a scheme here which he could support and actively encourage, link himself in with the prevailing currents in British culture of modernisation, industrialisation and artistic excellence. Britain was ruler of the waves. There's no other power that threatened it navally. There was rising uh, trade, living standards for at least substantial numbers of people were going up. The Great Exhibition was substantially an exhibition of artefacts which added to British prestige as a nation that from the point of view of many British individuals, was leading the world in the advent of parliamentary democracy and the promotion of uh, Western civilization. What was the reaction from the press to the Great Exhibition? The first reaction is totally negative. Punch describes the building as early English shed. But as soon as the glazing starts to go on, it starts twinkling in the light they describe it as Crystal Palace. So that's where the names come from, it's punch. But there are also endless comments, positive, once it's beginning to look like Crystal Palace, in the local papers. And so in the Times, in the Chronicle, you'll see the reactions. One of the great attractions of going to the Great Exhibition, I guess, was you saw the cutting-edge technology and industry of the age And the West Midlands was very well represented. Particularly Birmingham. It's interesting that when you add up the number of Birmingham manufacturers compared to black country manufacturers, Birmingham manufacturing was in the ascendant by considerable margin. As Hardman & Co. with their mock medieval brassware, the Hardman Company itself didn't particularly like the modernist building in which those uh, medieval-like constructions were exhibited. You had a lot of other decorative items, the Osler Fountain, and that was a magnificent mini-piece of engineering and also of artistic excellence for the time. And at the centrepiece of the exhibition, right where people came in the transept, It drew attention to a Birmingham manufacturing company. Other firms were exhibiting items from Reynolds, the nail makers, to pen manufacturers, to heavy engineers, to the producers of Japanware goods. And it provides evidence of Birmingham being the city of a thousand trades. As far as the black country was concerned, Stourbridge glassware, you had lockmakers exhibiting, you had exhibitors of hollowware, pots and pans. So you got a strong sense of the black country as a manufacturing centre. 
and also as a centre of heavy industry outside of the Great Exhibition. There were some huge pieces of coal hewn from the mines of Tipton, which uh, was a demonstration of how far the black country provided the raw material behind much of industrialisation. Other Midland industries were well represented. So if we went north in the Midlands towards Stoke-on-Trent, or what we now call Stoke-on-Trent, the Wedgwood business was well represented. The company of Wedgwood had been going through some bad times in the early part of the 19th century. It hadn't quite maintained the reputation that it had obtained under Josiah Wedgwood I. But the Great Exhibition provided an opportunity to demonstrate once again how important they were as a manufacturer of ceramics. And I think we can see the Great Exhibition contributing to a revival in Wedgwood in the mid to late 19th century. It's worth noting as well the foreign exhibits that were there. Britain wasn't necessarily that superior when it came to a number of industrial products. And one of the outcomes of the Great Exhibition, the money raised from it, as well as the establishment of prestigious institutions in South Kensington, was the provision of money to finance art and design education as a supplement to the craft skills of the British engineer or the British skilled worker. There was a recognition that countries like France and Germany and the United States, to name but three, were producing, in some cases, better quality goods, better designed goods than the British. So although the Great Exhibition was a showcase for manufacturing in Britain and manufacturing in the West Midlands, it was also a wake-up call that everything was perhaps not as rosy as it might have been. Noticeably, the furniture designers were put to shame by French furniture design. The Germans had leapt ahead of us in producing the Morse Telegraph. There had been Telegraph over here beforehand, but they'd gone ahead and made it much better. The Americans, with their major lack of labour, were inventing labour-saving devices, and McCormick had brought along the Reaper. And that was a real surprise, the McCormick Reaper. There's another man called Samuel Colt, who had brought along the six-gun, which was useful, according to the catalogue, for controlling the Indians. Malcolm, looking back now on the Great Exhibition, what do you consider was its greatest legacy? The legacy is multifaceted. It tells us a lot about the manufacturing industries in Victorian Britain. It tells us a lot about how quickly a major piece of construction could be achieved if the effort was put in. Another legacy was, of course, that it brought together in one place examples of British and indeed overseas manufacturing and overseas produce. 
that gave an opportunity for the aristocratic classes, the middle classes, and those sections of the working classes who were able to come to connect with where Britain was going and perhaps participate in the celebration of Victorian industrial might. Now, this was almost certainly not an intention, but the fact that you had large numbers of different people coming together, seeing this exhibition with very few incidents, said something about Victorian culture. And the exhibition occurred just a few years after the high point of Chartism, and at a time when there had been considerable incidents of unrest and working-class agitation. And I think from my point of view, it would have been very, very interesting to see what was happening at the exhibition, particularly on those days when you had large numbers of people from the industrial north and Midlands and elsewhere who had come down on their cheap rail tickets sponsored by their businesses. Almost certainly, in most cases, their first visit to London and actually gazing at the product of the country, which in many ways was an abstraction to them. Most people didn't travel very far from where they lived. We were only getting at this time with the advent of the railways a common system of time measurement in Britain. And I'm just wondering whether we can in part see the Great Exhibition as providing a major cultural legacy in that wider sense in connecting hundreds of thousands of people with an industrial economy and artistic and cultural achievements about which they would have known very, very little. David, what effect do you think it had on the perceptions, the ideas and the outlook of individuals who were attending, say, somebody who went from the West Midlands? It must have been absolutely incredible to go to the exhibition. It's the largest building in the world at the time. It's four times the size of St Paul's Cathedral. It's got 14,000 exhibitors with vast numbers of items, some of which move and were, and some of which are stupid, but some of which are dramatic and fantastic, which you can smell and taste. And you're surrounded by vast numbers of people in a situation you would never normally be. So it was a unique experience that you would remember all your life, and mostly with great pleasure. The moment people had made the effort to get there, they were fans. And many people who could went time and time again. It's like going on the London Underground today. You're surrounded by a babble of foreign voices and vast numbers of people. And that had never happened before. And it was a joyful experience. People were incredibly well behaved. Even the Duke of Wellington mobbed by crowds because he was recognisable. The crowds were fine. They were just you know, pleased to see him. The police that on site, there was, a, I think it was 300 police force based in the building, gently protected him and got him out. And he remembers it as fine, you know, it was good-hearted. The Duke of Wellington had been a, an opponent of modernity, if you like. He didn't like the railways because they encouraged people to move about. 
and that was politically dangerous. And of course, his house in Hyde Park, number one London, Astley House, had been uh, attacked by rioters at the time of the great reform bill agitations. But the fact you didn't have individuals threatening members of the establishment at the Great Exhibition, I think, was very important. You had large numbers of people collecting together and there were no incidents of any significance. Previous gatherings of large numbers of people had been regarded as very dangerous, like the New Hall meetings in Birmingham. This brought people together, but it wasn't a dangerous bringing of people together. And I think it contributed very much to the establishment of a common Victorian culture in the mid and late 19th century. Final question to both of you. Do you wish you'd been there? I have been there. I absolutely have been there. I've studied the contemporary accounts and the pictures and worked out where they come from to the point that I feel I know the exhibition. I really do. But yes, I'd love to have been there. It's the happiest decade of the 19th century. The country was feeling good. Things were going well. This incredible assembly in a wonderful building. A riot of colour and a riot of faces and moods and ideas. I think as well as the um, wonder of the new technology, it would be very interesting to me seeing how people interacted with one another, seeing what their reactions were to the exhibits, seeing how they responded to the flush lavatories. Very, very interesting, anthropologically or sociologically, I think. And from what you've described, great fun. Malcolm, David, thank you very much indeed. To learn more about the Great Exhibition, you can watch the companion films or listen to the podcasts narrated by David DeHaan, which are available on the History West Midlands website at www.historywm.com. .historywm.com <laughs>